0: Acts chapter 8 reminds you that in the structure of the book of Acts, and I think it's important you realize that every book in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, has a, a kind of a structure, has a flow. Their are books or letters or histories or, you know, Psalms is a collection of poems and, you know, songs and, you know, some books are collections like a Proverbs and, And all of them are trying to accomplish something. The person who wrote them down, led by the Holy Spirit, but each person is unique and different. They're trying to accomplish something. And when you get to the book of Acts, uh, which is a continuation of Luke's gospel, you're seeing the development of the church, and as I've shared many times, and in Acts 1-8 kind of sets, the, sets everything out in kind of like a table of contents. It says, go, you'll have the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'll end up being my witnesses." as you go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. And we're in that part where they haven't gone to the rest of the world yet, but we saw the last couple of weeks, Philip who was not Philip the Apostle, but Philip the one who was one of the evangelists, of uh, the one of the men who was, who was called the evangelist, one of the guys set aside in Acts uh, chapter 6. He had he had gone into Samaria. There was follow-up there. And now we're going to continue with Philip again in really unique encounter as he meets a man from the area of Ethiopia uh, and helps him come to faith in Jesus. There's some debate about you know, he was, but he was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish, but he was probably a convert to Judaism. But there's some debate about that as we go through. I'll kind of point some of that out to you. Uh, normally, we recognize that in Acts chapter 10, Peter going into the house of Cornelius was the beginning of the movement into the Gentiles, followed up by Paul. But here we're going to see Gentiles Gentile say, but it's it's a different situa- situation. Peter's Peter was commissioned by God, the Holy Spirit of God by Jesus, I guess, to go into the home of a Gentile. We'll see that sometime, you know, probably in late January or early February. We'll see that story again. He was commissioned to go into the home of a Gentile to begin a process. Here you're going to see just an encounter. It's not random in the sense that God's sitting there, but it's just, it's not necessarily commissioned the same way. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, and that's a desert road. So Jerusalem, the gospel was about sixty miles. Gaza was on the Mediterranean Sea, the southernmost end of the land of the Philistines, what you kind of call the West Bank today. Uh, and he traveled that there was a deserted road. Now, it's interesting, it says the angel of the Lord later on. We'll see directed by the Holy Spirit. We we probably ought not to sometimes be try to be too exacting and precise and say, well, here it was the angel, later it was the Holy Spirit. The focus isn't on who called him, on that he went. God ultimately called him. How God chooses to do it, God works. The word angel, and I think sometimes we forget, both in Hebrew and Greek, is just a word that means messenger. Obviously, at times, they are beings created by God who reside in the heavens. Obviously. Sometimes it's just a messenger. Probably we would understand this as somehow, some way, God speaking to him, either through a dream or a vision, um, the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. I mean, if it's a literal angel, that's fine. The, the, the context is not true or false based on whether it's a literal angel. What's literal about it is that the Lord spoke to him. Okay, so always remember: the most important thing is not the avenue the Lord speaks, but that the Lord speaks. And so he was told, get up, and go to Gaza. And so he followed the divine command in verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. who was in charge of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. That verse has a lot of stuff in it of significance from historical. It doesn't impact the meaning of anything per se. Um, what you have, Ethiopia is not the same area we think of as Ethiopia. So we usually think, okay, that's, you know, it's it's close to it. Ethiopia was an area along the Nile, um, close to really today what we would call the Sudan in that area. Candace was not the actual name, but a title basically. She was the queen mother. She was the mother of the king in that area at that time of that group of people. The king was considered divine. He was considered to be the son of the gods, or one god in particular. And as such, he did not deal with common affairs of governance. That, in that period of time, evidently fell to the mother of the queen, of the king, or whatever relative was in place. It wasn't always a mother available. Here it was, and her title would have been of Candace. She would have oversaw and ruled in that area. There was a man who was an official treasurer. He was classified as a eunuch. That was fairly common back then to have working in your uh, court. He was of high importance. He was highly ranking. Uh, most likely, we would understand that they would come from, you know, a, a background where they would be, you know, African, they'd be black. And so that was the background of where he would come. He would have been unique as a convert in the in the book of Deuteronomy, eunuchs were not allowed per se to be, they could always worship, but you, there was a limitation. All Gentiles were limited in how much of a Jew they could become. You could become a full-on proselyte and, you know, go through certain, you know, circumcision, all this other stuff. You still could only do so much. You, you weren't a full Jew, but that's the furthest you could go. Eunuchs could do less than that. But there was also, I believe, in the book of Isaiah, some, some allowances within to worship. All that to say, somehow, some way, he began to worship God. And the inclination is he, he actually worshiped. He made a trip to Jerusalem. This is for what, it, maybe it was a festival. For whatever reason, he wanted to go to the temple. He could, he, there were certain sacrifices he could do as a Gentile. There were limitations. But he wanted to get that experience. So you got a guy who was devout. That's important to understand that, you know, this convert was a, a, a devout person. He was returning to where he served. And he was sitting in his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. So he was sitting, and he was reading, and back then you read aloud. You read out loud. Now, the reason you read out loud is if you've ever seen the text that they had, you can understand uh, there, was no, there was no good grammar back then. There was not any punctuation. Words were kind of run on. Um, my, my Hebrew Bible and uh, yes, I have Hebrew, problems. will sound impressive, but I have several. does not know, mean I can know how to read it, uh, because the, if there's one language you're going to forget, it's over Greek or Hebrew, it's always going to be Hebrew, and I'm always weary of anyone who says, as a preacher, that they're really pretty good in Hebrew, because A, they're lying, or their family never sees them, because that is an impossible language. There are actually no vowels. In Greek, there are vowels. In, in Hebrew, there are no vowels. There are that it was actually, at this time, all the consonants just ran on. In the, in the Hebrew language, and this is why it's so difficult, it's a three-letter root system. And depending on the word and whether there's prefixes or suffixes, you can add letters and the root can drop out. Sometimes there's only one letter left of the root. And so you have prefixes and suffixes. And then they don't separate words. They run them together. Now, later on, they would add what we call pointing, or the equivalent of vowels, but they're not letters, they're dots. You heard the term jot or tittle? Jesus says, whoever removes one of the jot or tittle from the law, well, that's the pointing, the jot and the tittle, the way they hooks some things that they would use to add vowels. In essence, there's more to it than that. I'm telling you this because... If you were going to understand it, you had to read it out loud. You had to basically get hooked on phonics and just kind of read it. And as you go, would figure they didn't read fluently. You know, like some of you, you know, you do that speed reading stuff, or you do what I do called skim reading. When you read like the first sentence, figure it out of that paragraph and move on. That's how they did it. Or you did what I did in school. You read cliff notes. Either way, they didn't have that. So he's reading out loud, trying to work through it, understand the complication of this. Then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because the word, the word Spirit should be capitalized, said to Philip, go up and join his chariot. When it says, said to Philip, doesn't necessarily mean he heard a voice, but he was moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And, and so he went up to the chariot and uh, joined up, and Philip ran. So this is, picture this, here's the chariot being led by horses. Philip is there, and so he begins running, sprinting up by uh, the chariot. And uh, and so that it's kind of comical when you think he's running up there out of breath asking him, do you understand what you're reading? You know, as he runs alongside. So probably they stop at some point and have a conversation. Do you understand? Does this make sense to you? And then the, the eunuch said, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. So he said, how can I understand this? It's A, when you see in a minute he's reading from Isaiah, it's, it's a difficult passage. It's not like he's reading from the law, say, of Genesis. Remember, this is, this is 2,000 years ago, so they have the Old Testament, but not necessarily like you and I think about it today. Um, he's not reading from Genesis. He's not reading from Exodus. He's not reading about the Ten Commandments. He's not reading the history of entering the, in the promised land and, you know, and God keeps his promise. He's reading, as we'll see from Isaiah, and he's reading a very difficult passage. And he's not Jewish. He wasn't raised that way. He didn't grow up being taught the Jewish scriptures. So it's a really difficult thing for him to understand. And so what you see here are a couple of things that are very important for us in our life. Is that we're going to encounter people all the time who struggle to understand the New Testament and certainly the Old Testament because it's foreign to them. If they didn't grow up with it, they're not going to understand it. If they don't have all the church talk and church terminology that you and I may have growing up, if if they're just new to church, it's difficult. We have a lot of people that church is fairly new to them or coming back is new to them, and they struggle with that. So they need people to help. Now, we say all the time, you can pick up the New Testament, and you can read it, and you can understand it, and you can, especially like the Gospels. You can get the gist of it. It doesn't mean you can understand all of it completely. Some things are difficult. The book of Revelation is difficult. There are things in our in our modern world, uh, sometimes understanding some of the letters that Paul wrote can be difficult. Understanding what Jesus was trying to get through can be a little difficult at times. You can understand enough to know you need to trust Jesus as Savior, but... It can be a little bit complicated. So they need someone uh, to help them. This is one of the things also when you think about it is that we encourage people who are new to the faith, don't start in the Old Testament because that's really harder than the new. I mean, if you, if you just say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start reading the Bible today and I'm going to read it through and I'm going to start in the book of Isaiah, that's difficult. And I, I read, last year, I sit down, you know, part of my Bible reading, I read, because I hadn't done it in a while, I read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and I was just like, man, Lord, this is rough. And I understand it, and it's rough. And I can not imagine, what it would be like, so you've got to kind of get that sense of what's going on here. It's just, I don't, how am I going to understand that? Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading is this, and he was reading from Isaiah 53, I think it's verse 7 and 8. Now, understand in the book of Isaiah, there are passages that we call the suffering servant passages. There are passages that look to the coming Messiah. It didn't mean they understood it that way. It didn't mean that when Isaiah wrote it, he understood all that completely. I'll deal with that some Sunday when I talk about the virgin birth in Isaiah 7:14. It didn't mean that the Jews always understood it, though. A lot of these passages they did understand it's applying to the Messiah. This is one where there's debate about how much they understood this would apply to the Messiah. But certainly, by the time Jesus came, all of the all of the new all of the Christians who came from a Jewish background understood this applied to Jesus. So here's part of that passage from Isaiah 52:13 through all of chapter uh, 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before his shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will retreat? Who will relate his generation? For his life was removed from the earth. So you can see this is a passage that deals with Jesus, the Messiah, and that is Jesus. And the suffering, the death, the sheep, the lamb led to be slaughtered. So without us going into what that is, that is the passage that they're dealing with. And it can, you can imagine how difficult that would be for this Ethiopian, who was an intelligent man, who was well-educated, and had you know, a lot of power, a lot of wealth, a lot of things to go with him. He struggled with this. A lot of people can struggle with a lot of parts of the, of the Bible. They really can't. And, 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 and I get that. And sometimes I really try to encourage people, you know, and, and, and I would tell you, encourage people, especially if they're fairly new, start with the Gospel of John. That's, that's a really good book. And then First John and read the Gospels. And you don't ever want them to start with Isaiah. Don't say, hey, if you want to be, start here. You don't want them to start in, you know, Ecclesiastes. Hey, why don't you read Ecclesiastes? See what you think about that. So the eunuch then answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this? of himself, or of someone else? Who is he talking about? The importance to us isn't in trying to understand who he's talking about. Of course, he's talking about the Messiah. But the question is framed in such a way as he gives Philip the opportunity to do what we're going to see in a minute, which is share the story of Jesus. It is important for us in our life to look for the opportunities we have to share the story of Jesus, one of the things that it 's often used, and one of the reasons Philip is called Philip the Evangelist is because of this story, this story is often used as a, a prototype or as an example of, of personal evangelism or witnessing or sharing your faith. Probably the single most important thing, or the two things that are most important are to be available and obedient to the Holy Spirit leading you that 's number one, but secondly is to understand what the opportunity is. It wasn't just that he was reading from Isaiah or that he was reading from a passage of Scripture that dealt with Jesus. It's that he asked the question, I don't know what this means. Can you tell me who this is about? And in asking that question, he gave Philip the opportunity that Philip was both prepared for and available for And we'll see then what happens at this point. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, so he used this, this is where he was. He preached Jesus to him. Now the word preached here is a word for our word evangelism. He began to evangelize. There's different words for preach. There is a more technical word like what I do on Sundays, which is preach. And then there is a more general word, like this word, which both means basically the same thing, where it means to share the good news or to evangelize. And that is the word. It's the word he began evangelizing him. He began to share the good news. He began here, but using all of the scripture he had, he began to share the story of Jesus. Now, all the scripture he had was just Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet, right? By the time, you know, this, there was nothing yet because. This is early, early on in the life of the church. So Paul hadn't written anything. No gospels had been written. So he's he's going, you know, he knew about Jesus, but he's going off the scriptures they have. But here's the thing. He begins to evangelize, which means to share the good news about Jesus. He begins to tell the story of Jesus. I think it's important. I, you know, I grew up in a day and age you was know, a young minister where they were always trying to get us. You know, you've got to have your testimony written out. Have you written testimony? I never wrote out my testimony. I never thought having a written testimony was near as important as other people thought it was. I, uh, I didn't like all the formulas. They said, go through all these formulas. To learn. I, didn't, I didn't want to do all that. Here's what I thought was important. I need to know the story of Jesus. I need to know how that story has changed my life. And for pretty much all of my ministry, What I have simply tried to do is help people understand the story of Jesus and then say how that story has changed my life. How can it change your life? And so however you want to do it, that matter to me, you know, per se, if you want to have your testimony all figured out, that's fine right now. If you want to, if you, you know, want to follow a set formula, that's fine too. You don't have to do it that way. I'm just telling you, I know you don't have to do it that way because I don't do it that way. But you need to tell the story of Jesus who's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's our scripture. We don't, we don't need to go to the Old Testament. So they went to the Old Testament. Well, that's how we do it. No, that's how they did it. Because that's all they had. We also didn't study the Old Testament like they did. And we didn't understand the things like they did. And also, 2,000 years ago, they were within a few hundred years of a lot of this stuff, whereas we're within couple of thousand years plus a few hundred years. For us, the primary source of information in sharing Jesus should be the story of Jesus. Now, there's stuff Paul wrote, absolutely. I, I deal with Romans all the time. If you confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead, you'll be saved. I talk, you know, in Ephesians, you know, for by grace of your through faith. But that's normally on the back end of sharing the story. What I want to do, just talk about, the birth of Christ, the ministry of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And I want to do it in such a way as it is good news to them. I surely want to deal with sin. I get that. But my focus isn't on their sin. My focus is on the life that is available to them. They need to be forgiven of their sin, 100%. Got it. I know all that stuff. But unlike some people, my main focus isn't to deal with all of the depths and the horribleness and the wickedness of their life. My focus is to get them to understand they can leave that behind and there's something available to them that will change their life. In the world in which we live, especially the people under the age of 40, that's the approach that works best. Actually, probably even under the age of 50, but certainly under the age of 40, people born around 1980. And, and, you know, from that point on, Telling them how horrible their life is isn't as effective as approach as telling them how Christ can change their life. And that's really the good news. And we, we need to deal with sin. And I'm saying we don't do that. Don't, give, don't mishear me. I'm saying that's not the focus. So evidently at some point, he trusted Jesus. We're not told that, but it had to have happened because in verse 36, they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, <laughs> What prevents me from being baptized? What a great line. What, what's keeping me from being baptized? Now, undoubtedly, Philip talked to him about baptism. Not that baptism saved him and necessarily washed away his sins, but baptism began. Remember, early in the life of the church, they focused on that baptism began the new life of Christ. This was the sign. You came from a Jewish background. The sign of you being Jewish was circumcision. The sign of you being a Christian was baptism. Baptism became extremely important. We, I probably am guilty of not emphasizing its importance enough, but I do recognize and I do preach that it's important. It doesn't save us, though. But the important thing is then that was the public profession of faith. How did you publicly profess your faith? For most of Christianity it was through baptism. Nowadays, as Baptists, we kind of, you know, come forward at the end of the church service and do it then. Interesting enough, most of the time when people come to faith in our church now, they don't walk down to the front. Most of the time, how you know people come to Jesus is baptism. I'm not saying we're doing it the way they did it in the New Testament. I'm saying we have adopted an approach that baptism can be the first time the church knows someone is a believer. They don't, a lot of churches, you know, I grew up, well, they can't be baptized until they joined the church, walk down the aisle. But that's not biblical mandate. I mean, it's not, it's not unsound. It's not the way it was done. It was done, most of us, for most of human, for Christian history, they would make an invitation, oftentimes from the baptismal waters. A friend of mine got baptized uh, that's a long ago in a church in Austin. Um, it was a uh, non-denom church. It was a lot like ours, but, but They had a big, they had a couple of baptism services a year. And as they're baptizing, it's going on and on through the service. They for people, if you want to be baptized, there's folks in the back. Go talk to them. And basically what they were saying, you go talk to them about being baptized. They were saying, go talk to them about Jesus. And they would have people that day give their life to Christ and come be baptized immediately. Immediately be baptized. They they didn't just baptize anybody. You had to give your life to Christ. But they were following more of, of this model that we see. And one of the things that I think that's important here, that I, and there's a lot of debate about, but they didn't have a baptism class. I know now a lot of churches for a long time did a baptism class. You had to go to these certain classes to be baptized. I understand why they did it. I've never done it, never liked it, and I've always cringed at it. Because in the New Testament, baptism was the way you expressed your faith for the very first time. Going to a class always kind of set uneasy with me. And I got friends who they the pastor. Oh, yeah, they got to go. There's so many classes they go to. We won't baptize them. We want them to know what they're doing. They don't, they're never going to know what they're doing. So get, it's just, man, it's just Christianity is sometimes it's something you just figure out as you go. You know how I know that? Because that's what I do. I still figure this out as I go. I still learn new things. I don't have it all together. If, if I couldn't be baptized till I understood what I was doing, I still wouldn't be baptized. Because it's obvious every Sunday, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. It's a journey of our faith. Baptism is that beginning. So, now, verse 37 is not in most of the older texts. So, you know, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is probably, in. understand, we don't have the original documents. We have later documents. Most of the, Old documents that were written earliest don't have this. It was evidently, I think it was at, it was added later. Probably in a, it was probably a marginal note. Sometimes marginal notes get added into copying and copying and copying. It Has nothing to do with whether scripture is sacred or inspired. It had to do with how they copied it over you know hundreds of years, and it was it was probably a, a baptism question that God asked. So he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized. And there's always debate about what down into the water was. It mean a lot of our non-evangelical friends will say, "Well, the water is probably only, you know, in, in knee deep," and they poured it on him. Listen, they went down into it. And the word "baptized" means it's a violent term to mean plunged under. It can mean to be poured over, but there's no evidence in the early church that they poured. For baptism, all the evidence is they plunged. I mean, people will talk about words and etymologies and what they think might have happened, and, and what they're doing is they're basically playing the hokey pokey: put your right foot in, take your right foot out, kind of thing. You know, the word baptism, the word baptize, it just means to drown. There's there's no concept. It means pour in the sense of just pouring all over you like a shower. So if they poured it, it would have been more like gallons of it over there. It wouldn't have been a little, you, it would have been covering you up, like splashing you over. If they, I mean, it, they, baptism is what we do. You go in, you come back out. They went down into the water. And when he came up out of the water, that makes it sound like he went under. The spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way. We all, it, sound, and it can mean that he just disappeared. That's how it's preached a lot. The word stanched means, means to rapture, to pull him. And so, it, But it may also just be a very descriptive way of saying that he immediately led him away. And so the eunuch never saw there was nothing after that. He just was gone. I, one, of the old, one of the really good conservative commentators says, says this, I never want to take away a miracle where a miracle occurred. But I never want to assume a miracle when one didn't occur. This does not have to be miraculous. This does not have to be he disappeared and he appeared, like we'll see later. That actually seems a little mythological. The better understanding, I think, to me, it's just me, is that immediately the spirit took him away, immediately led him away, and the eunuch never saw him again. But if he snatched him away, I'm good with that too. Philip eventually found himself at Azotus, which means he ended up, that's where he ended up. That's like, you know, I drive along and down Highway 70 and eventually I'll find myself in Alamogordo. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So notice he kept preaching the gospel. The most important thing is not, not how he disappeared and appeared. I don't care the way. But that he kept on preaching the gospel. And so from here, I think there's it's just some really good things to see in this story, and if we focus on the right things, what we're focusing on is here is a man who came from a wealthy, powerful background who needed Jesus. His background was completely different than Philip, completely different than Philip. But Philip came alongside him and saw this opportunity to share Jesus, and that's exactly what he did. He shared the story of Jesus. He didn't make it up. He shared from scriptures. He connected what was there in the Old Testament to Jesus. You and I have the New Testament. It makes it a lot easier. He shared the story. And obviously, he led him to a point of making a profession of faith. Talking about baptism, it's obvious there is implied. But basically, what happened is when that guy came to Jesus, he was ready to go all in. And baptism was a sign that that happened. In in all of this, what you see is the Holy Spirit leading. The Holy Spirit led him to the eunuch. The Holy Spirit led him away from the eunuch. And Philip was following the Holy Spirit wherever he goes. That's really such a good picture for us. Let's go where the Spirit leads. And wherever it leads, we're going to find people who need Jesus. And when we find people who need Jesus, let's tell them the story of Jesus. And let's not worry about who they are. Let's not worry about their background. Let's not worry about their past. Let's take them right where they are at that moment and share with them Jesus whoever they may be, wherever they may come from, whatever their life situation is, doesn't matter. They need Christ. We'll share them with Christ. Now, the next story in this series, and we'll see when we come back, is the conversion of Paul, which is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. This is the first. And with the conversion of Paul, following the conversion of the eunuch, you begin to see then the shifting in movement towards Gentiles. After the conversion of Paul, In chapter 10, you see Peter with a vision that leads him to Cornelius to go into the home of a Gentile. You then begin to see some conflict about Gentiles coming to faith. What do they have to do? And then you end up with the Jerusalem Council. And because of the adventures of Paul and Barnabas leading Gentiles to Jesus, and then the whole spectrum and the whole movement of Christianity changes.